Welcome to Footnotes, a history podcast focusing on forgotten moments, people on the wrong side, and those who lost. My name is Mark, and I am not a historian. I'm joined here with my best friend, Kevin. So recently, I was doing some research on the English during the Hundred Years' War. And in the process of reading and reading and reading about a certain event and a certain rebellion in the English countryside, I came across a word that I had never seen before. And when I read about it a little bit more, it intrigued me. That word is not an English word, and it's pronounced chevauché. And a chevauché was something that the English used quite a bit during the conflict known as the Hundred Years' War that occurred from the 1330s until the 1450s. And this was a particularly intriguing event once I had learned a little bit more about how people in the Middle Ages had lived. And the more I researched it, the more I realized this would be an interesting topic to dive into, at least for a short time. So it's chevauché? Chevauché. Chevauché. Is that the act of flinging things uh, through the air by a catapult? That's a trebuchet. Ah, dang it. That was close. Is it instead the thing that sushi chefs yell at you when you walk in the door? That's really what I thought they were saying at me after a while, because it just sounds exactly the same. And you ducked because you thought giant rocks and or plague cows were coming at you? (laughs) I don't have a response to that. They never do. (laughs) We should always be recording after. We should always record after a beer lunch. (laughs) Yeah. In November 1355, the Prince of England, then in his 20s, stood on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. Behind him, thousands of French fields lay in ruins. French villages were burned down. The morale of the French was ripped ripped apart. And isolated with his small army in French territory, Edward the Black Prince was forced to make some difficult decisions. But just how he got there, and the story behind what's called a chevauché, a large-scale, organized, mounted raid, should help us understand more about the intelligence and capability of those in the Middle Ages. Because when we talk about the Middle Ages— we oftentimes think of them as almost glorified barbarians. Men in armor, men with swords, on horseback, raiding the countryside, attacking each other. No sophistication whatsoever. Yeah, you don't think a lot of, like, well-executed military drills. You think, yeah, raiding, pillaging, people on horseback flinging mud up as they, ri- as they like, ride through, like, a burning town, that kind of thing. Not a lot of, not a lot of foresight or, like, Monday morning quarterbacking happening. It's interesting that you bring up Monday morning quarterbacking because I want us to keep the idea of professional athletes in our mind as we think about this because that's, to be perfectly honest, the best modern analogy that we have to the men we're going to talk about today. And there is a certain truth to the the view you had in your mind as you were thinking about them trampling through a burning village because that's what our story is about today, the burning of lots of villages. But in order to do that properly, and to do that without becoming stranded and isolated and attacked proves to us that people in the Middle Ages were just as capable and intelligent as we are today. They just had a different set of tools to work with. 
So when the Black Prince is standing on the Mediterranean coast, it took a lot of effort for him to get there. It's not easy to go through hundreds of miles of enemy territory during a state of active war and then still be in a position to be successful. To understand how he got there, we need to go back in time just slightly. So we're in 1355, we're at the end of the year, and we are talking about the Prince of England. So this is Edward of Woodstock. That's how people were t- named back then. They were named, a, you know, a first name, and then they were named after where they were born. And he's the oldest son of Edward III of England. This story takes place about two decades into what's called the Hundred Years' War, a war that actually lasted 116 years. And the basic background is very simple, though you can go into much greater detail. About 150 years before the events that we're talking about, the English were in control of about half of France. And they were in control of half of France because they had inherited it. The king of England was the Duke of Aquitaine, Duke of Normandy, Count of this, Earl of that, blah, blah, blah. He was the hereditary overlord of these huge sections of modern France. And the king of France controlled a tiny portion of his own country. And that produced this awkward dynamic where the king of one country is the overlord to part of the king of another country. And not only that, the lands that the English king owned were the rich part of his kingdom. France was wildly wealthy at the time. And during the reign of King John of England, of Robin Hood infamy... Oh, it's that King John. It's the only King John. It's the lion he's, in pajamas. He, yes, exactly. And he's the only one who doesn't have an, any na- number after his name, because there's only one King John. Because after John, no one wanted to name their kids John. Yeah, because of the pajamas. Exactly. This is a joke for only people within, I, es- I estimate, five to ten years of our age. Yes. So, born in the late 80s, early 90s. Yep. Hashtag only 90s kids. King John lost all the French territories that the English crown had, except for one, a part of France called Gascony, modern-day Bordeaux, the Bordeaux area where Bordeaux wine comes from. It's the western central part hugging the Atlantic Ocean. They controlled significantly more land, but they had lost it all. Fast forward a couple generations— you get kings like Edward I of Braveheart fame and Edward II of Braveheart, Braveheart kind of fame. And then Edward III, they're, one, they're in a line, Edward I, II, and III. And you start to see the English trying to grab their land back. At the same time, they are able to claim the French crown. Because, to be perfectly honest, they were more closely related to the last French king who died than the person who succeeded the French king. But what's really happening is the French want to take their continental lands back. They feel that they have the ability and right to reconquer parts of France that they used to hold in what was called the Angevin Empire. This is an empire that no one really thinks about anymore, but at a time, France was more English than France. Now, this war starts off pretty boringly, to be honest. It's lots of back-and-forth arguments and dynastic claims and raising of armies and people trying to stop the war, but it proceeding anyway but what ends up happening is really early on the the english annihilate the french in two battles they utterly obliterate the french at the battle of um i think it's pronounced slice s-l-u-y-s where the entire french navy is destroyed so the war is then on the continent because the french can't get to england so the english are continually invading france and then there's one of the most famous battles of medieval history a battle a lot of people have heard of called the battle of crecy and that's where the english longbow 
is used to annihilate the entire French aristocracy. And that's in the 1340s. So about 10 years before the events we're talking about, pretty much the entire upper level of the French nobility, the best French knights, the best French soldiers are killed in a disastrous battle where the English just dominate. Because the English have longbows, the French have crossbows. And longbows are better than crossbows. And longbows are strong enough to shoot their armor. So remember that as we go through this story. The English have this super weapon the French are terrified of. Hundred Years' War is a war of truces, which is kind of ironic. It's a war that continually is stopped. And the reason for that is in the Middle Ages, defense wins. You can't just easily conquer a castle. That's why castles exist, because they're hard to conquer. The only way to conquer them is to starve them. It takes a while. It, it takes a really long time. And you're usually in enemy territory trying to starve them in their own territory. So you have to quite a bit of an advantage to conquer a castle. Now there's siege weapons like trebuchets and ballistae. And, um, Which is what this episode is named after. Exactly. A wide variety of other things. But those take a lot of manpower. They take, they're very expensive. They're very slow. These are not easy things to move around. During one of these many truces, though, the English were being called upon to help their Gascon forces. So Gascony is a region around modern-day Bordeaux. It hugs the Atlantic Ocean, and it's one of the few places the English still had control of, as I said, during the Hundred Years' War. They had lost all their lands in France. This is what they still held. And the Gascons, though they were definitely French, mind you, so is the English aristocracy. They're all pretty French at this time, though they speak English now. The Gascons like having the English as their overlords because that gives them a ton of independence. They're able to control their own futures. They have their own money. They have complete independence because they have this distant, pretty hands-off king. As long as they sent their best export to England, English left them alone. And since they are French, they're sending Bordeaux wine. It's a good... It's a good deal for the English. And they're actually sending so much wine that they become dependent on English wheat to feed themselves. They transfer all of their land into vineyards. And so they now have this close relationship with England where English, the English, as long as they're receiving their wine, they'll transport the wheat. They got this great market exchange going and they back off. Just drunk and happy. Drunk and happy. And the English can't grow their own wine. England's cold and miserable most of the year, and you can't grow wine during in that weather. So You've clearly never had a good English Syrah. Mm. Goes great with, like, cold potatoes. <laughs> Which, of course, weren't in Europe at this point. <laughs> <laughs> during one of these many truces, though, the French, under a guy named John, the Count of Armagnac, who becomes the one of the main characters characters in the story. The Count of Armagnac is consistently breaking this truce and he's raiding into the Gascon countryside. And he's burning villages and he's taking territory and he's capturing castles and he's slowly encroaching on Gascony. So the Gascons send some messengers up to the court of Edward III and say, help us please. Now we already know that at this time the, the English were intending to invade France. And they were intending to invade France in a wide variety of ways. But this opens up the opportunity for a southern invasion. Most of this war takes place in northern France, around Normandy and around Paris. That's where most of the war is being spent. And that's where the majority of the French troops and the English troops are sent. So we're going to be in a little side theater for this. 
Well, because of the, the needs of the Gascons and the needs of having Edward III up in northern France, Edward decides to send his son. And he has a lot of sons, but his oldest son is particularly competent. And he's going to send him down to southern France to be his right-hand man. And he's going to send him with a rather organized force. So the English call up all of their troops. They call in a bunch of loans. They mortgage all of the Black Prince's lands to raise this army. And it's going to be one of three armies that's going to invade France all at the same time in the summer of 1355. But his army is not intending to stick around, as we'll get into. So with this massive amount of organization to get this army together, Edward, the Black Prince, I'll call him pretty much the Black Prince from now on, he is given about 6,000 men in total, but only about 3,000 of them come from England. They organize them. They pay them in contracts. They pay them like these year-long prepaid contracts. So these aren't just like a bunch of guys they lift up and say, hey, you're going to come fight with me. They say, all right, here, here's the men we need. Who will come and join us? Because you need to be well-trained. You need to have enough money that you can have a farm and train yourself. You need to be able to supply your own weapons. But we are going to pay you quite a bit of money to go on this attack. So already we got this instance that these aren't just militia being pulled together and they're going to go off and have an adventure and invade France. These are professional, well-trained soldiers going on this adventure. And they sit in Southampton Harbor throughout most of the summer because there's not enough boats and the winds are going the wrong direction. One of the many attacks on France is canceled and the other northern attack sets first because it's more important. What a strange time in history. Like, hey, you guys, war is postponed. The wind's not going the right direction. Pretty much. That is wild. They wait like six weeks because they're just waiting for the, the weather to get warm. Cold weather means it's blowing toward Scandinavia. Warm weather means it's blowing toward North America. It just goes back and forth. Mm -hmm. And when they finally get away, we get a little bit of an idea because we have a lot of the... Um, economic and tax records of this and plus the black prince wrote a big letter he kind of wrote a diary as he was doing this to a, a, like a bishop they're leaving about three thousand soldiers and about about the same number of like support troops he is being sent to france with every single major important veteran of the previous campaigns remember this is like 20 years into the war so he's being sent with guys that not only have participated in conflict they've been successful the black prince himself fought at the Battle of Cressy. He was one of the main leaders in the success of that battle. His father actually took a step back during the battle and said, he's now in one of the most important parts of the battle. He's either going to succeed or he's going to die. Fun and fact, he succeeded. Fun fact, he was only the Grey Prince at the time. Yes, then he became the Black Prince. Mind you, this kid was 16 Whoa! at this battle. That is... And his father just simply said, he can either handle it or he can't. So he had earned his spurs. He'd already been a knight, but he had really earned his right to be a leader. And the guys he's fighting with are the men that were actually above him in this battle. But since he had gained this power, he's being sent with four earls and a huge variety of other people with various titles in their names. And each of these guys is coming to him with their own armies. So he raised his own army with his own funds. Then they, the crown paid for a bunch of archers, longbowmen. And then there's a group of men that all raise their own mini-armies. And it forms this force that is apparently very well-organized. It's well-paid. And there's, like, 
so much effort into making sure that everyone shows up that if someone had said they were going to participate in this conflict but they didn't show up to the mustering zone like everybody wants to participate we're going to pay you this money and you got to show up to the city people who didn't show up they hunted them down and jailed them and we have like one-on-one records of people being chased down in jail because they didn't show up so this isn't just like send out a message and everyone shows up is going to show up. No, they knew exactly who was going to show up. They had their names. They had their signatures. It was an organized contractual indenture to participate in this conflict. So after waiting in September, they show up, them being the English army in the French countryside in Bordeaux, which is the capital of Gascony. And they're way behind schedule. What they want to do is they want to invade Southern France and they want to pay back the Count of Armagnac for what he had been doing to Gascony. And they hope that they can inflict a, like almost a propaganda victory more than anything else. During this time in history, the aristocracy is thought of as those who fight, those who protect the peasants. They're the ones with the weapons, they're the ones with the food, they're the ones who are organized, they're the ones who should be protecting the countryside. So the idea here in what's called a chevauchet is if the English can raid the French countryside, burn down villages, take crops, and just cause havoc, they will undermine the French crown and help them in their victory. Because at this point in history, the various little regions of France aren't wholly in support of the French king. They're semi-independent. So they can be like, well, you didn't defend me, therefore I'm not going to defend you. And that might help the English later on. And that's the purpose of what's called a chevauchet, which is like, it's a French word that just means like a mounted raid. This isn't, though, as we'll see, just a little quick hit. The sheer amount of organization and planning that went into getting these guys there is mind-boggling. This is thousands of people with all the food they need and for all the horses they have. They have like triple the horses that they have men. And they're just going to move through enemy territory? No, they have to be able to support that. They're filled with, you know, backup support, clerks and the, I mean, the English, the English don't have nearly as much as of France as they used to. So if they're going to roam around, they've only got that coastline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, you have to be well fortified to be able to then like just go, let's go inland and do some stuff. So the Gascons apparently knew they were coming. I mean, they'd asked for their help because we know they know they were coming because when the English show up, there's already an army of Gascon soldiers that doubles the size of the English army. So there's about 6,000 soldiers total. They're all mounted but with between one and four horses. So these are well-supported soldiers, and they're able to move particularly quickly. Remember, the horse is the fastest thing in the Middle Ages. If you're on a horse, you are at max speed. And these are good, well-fed horses. And they have this massive supply cart behind them filled with grain and water and all of the things that the horses need. But they know that if they're going to go in and attack the French countryside, they are going to have to live off the land somewhat. But they have enough of a, like a, think of it like a grain reserve that they can support themselves. So the Black Prince and his council, they have a lot of difficult decisions to make. They need to always know where they're going, who they're fighting, and they have to be very careful about what battles they do fight. Right, because they're trying to kind of ingratiate themselves to the French peasantry, right? Like, kind of. They're they're rolling over some stuff, but isn't the goal to make the king of France look incompetent and like he's not taking care of them? 
it's a little bit of that. Obviously, they want to make the French king look incompetent and can't take care of them. But most of these lands had actively and outright supported the French king. Oh, so a lot of it's payback as well. A lot of it's payback. And it's it's making an example of them mm-hmm. for the people who have not actively fought against the English to make them go, hey, you know, English, not so bad. We have lots of grains that you need. Or more, not only English, it's not so bad. It's English, um, you're going to beat us anyway. So mm. we're just going to join your side. Oh, didn't we just do an episode like this? A little bit. Oh. Uh, in the show notes, we'll have a link to the previous episode. So the beginning that's of this... But it's America. It's America, yes. <laughs> Not yeah. moving at horse speed. No. Moving at SimCity cheetah speed. Great reference. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> in the beginning of the Chevauchet, we have two major forces. The English have landed an army of 3,000 soldiers, plus their support, in the western French territory of Gascony, which at that point was controlled by the English. They are French, and they speak a... French language, yet they are the French allies of the English. And they add about as many soldiers as the English brought. So we have 6,000 English and Gascon forces who are fighting because the French, backed French, are raiding into the Gascon territory, burning villages, and taking castles. Well, the French backed French are led by a man named John the Count of Armagnac. So we have Armagnac against the Black Prince. We have the French against the English and English-backed French. And that is our dynamic for the rest of this. There's no more real complication beyond those two. But the first thing that the Chevauchet needs to do is get to the French. And the Black Prince takes a very specific route. He basically goes southeast, but mostly south. And he's trying to enter the Count of Armagnac's land, which is not unsurprisingly called Armagnac. It's a relatively small area. Um, but it's very wealthy. It's absolutely filled with food and windmills and castles and villages and lots of big churches. And when the English move into that area, the first thing they experience when they start to cross the frontiers is quite a few of those villages and castles immediately switch sides. Pretty much everybody along the border knows when to switch sides and when not to. It's right. not a particularly large group. Not but their first rodeo. No, and they had been switching sides for the past 10 to 20 years as the Count raided and then the Gascons raided back. And remember, with the Black Prince are Gascon aristocrats. I mean, these are the top of the Gascon army doing payback against the French, the Armagnacs, for invading them. Well, the English pierce into the countryside and you get your first taste as you read about this of what the English are going to do for the rest of this two-month chevauchee. They burn everything they have to get as much resource as they can from these areas so they take all the grain they take all the supplies and they burn everything else they align themselves into three battles as they're called those are three like uh divisions of their army so they split into three groups and each one kind of acts quasi independently they try to move together but they all just send out little raiding parties everywhere so think of these three armies kind of moving in parallel to each other southeast through France. Remember, Bordeaux is right on the ocean on the west. And everywhere they go, they just torch everything. Now, most of the people in these areas, the French people who live in Armagnac, they are able to flee, but their villages are completely burned down. If the village is in any way heavily fortified and there's an actual like military garrison in some of these towns, or like a castle with really thick castle walls, the English go right around it. 
They have no desire to fight anything that's going to take a long time because they can only feed their army, even with the supply train they've brought, for at most a week or two if they stay in one spot. So they have to keep moving so they can pillage the countryside and continually resupply themselves. It's not that they are only pillaging. It's that they need that to keep their their silos full, basically. And it's just these giant baggage trains, these carts filled with wheat and bread and things. And as they move through this area, there's not a French army in sight. And they pretty much destroy the entirety of Armagnac. Which in the modern context is referred to as Disarmagnac. They spend 10 days in this territory. And pretty much every square inch of land is put to the flame. What's weird, though, is there's, weird, there's little instances in this area where they'll sh- the, the English army will show up to a village and purchase supplies from the village and then burn the village down. Or they'll purchase supplies from one village and leave another village alone. And part of that goes with what had happened in the past with some of these areas. If they had any leanings toward the English, because they're still pretty close to the English-held territory, they might get completely spared. We get our first instances of the English leaving uh, church property completely untouched. They never burn down, if they can help it, monasteries and churches and convents. They just leave them be. And they leave their land be, too. The Black Prince is famous for being a particularly devout man. And one thing he did not want to do was anger the church, nor did he feel it was right. And so though there are instances, especially at the beginning here, of churches being burned down, it was always against orders. And if... Mm. A village was a part of, like, an archbishop's land, which the archbishop may be 100 miles away, but he might have a little village with the land surrounding it. That would be untouched. So they're kind of picking and choosing how they're going, and so they might have completely cordial relationships with one village and then burn down and kill everybody in another. So there is some strategy, and not just in terms of military movements, but there's, like, a meta strategy to this. Yeah, it's a lot more organized and... And goal-oriented. It's goal-oriented. They yeah. want to destroy those areas of the French countryside that were supporting France. They're trying to destroy French morale. Yeah. And the French, but French morale specifically. And this entire time, there's this lingering idea as they go through Armagnac of, where are the French? Where's the French military? We've passed some garrisons. We're moving through this land. And we haven't encountered any French military yet. There's, no, there's been no real resistance. There's been none. Like even, even when they go past a castle or whatever... It's not like anybody comes out and like hooks a rock or something. There's a little bit of that. They try to really early on attack a fairly well-fortified town, and the town resists, and actually one of the major uh, English leaders is killed. He's mm. really the only major leader killed at this point, and really for the entire event. And the English realize, ooh, we can't even attack these fortified towns, and they just leave. Okay. So there is some, and so there's a couple towns that because they have a good castle, the castle stays okay, but the town is burned down. Because the town's outside the walls. Mm-hmm. Well, after they've done their conquering of Armagnac, they don't just turn around and go back. They actually decide to continue, and they go south. And if you go south in France, you're eventually going to hit the Pyrenees Mountains. The Pyrenees are the southern border between France and Spain. And the, the English army starts to cut through this really impassable terrain. They're going up and down these big, steep ravines and crossing these small rivers But these are particularly difficult areas to travel. And part of the reason they're down there is they know that if they go to these difficult-to-travel areas, the French army is less likely to intercept them and surprise them. 
Remember, they're sending out scouts on a daily basis. They know what's going on around them, and they're still looking for the French. Through these travels, they finally, appear, they finally arrive at a major town. So far, they haven't approached a like city. They've only approached which are, what are small villages, medium-sized towns, and castles, which are everywhere. And they approach the town of Toulouse. Now, Toulouse is the same size as London. This is a major city. It has tens of thousands of people, and it's heavily fortified. It's got walls. It's got a massive castle. We're not just talking a, a, a moat with a stone building on top of it. We're talking a curtain-walled castle, the kind you think of when you think of a medieval castle. And in Toulouse is the Count of Armagnac, who is the king of, if, king of France's main lieutenant in the southwest of France. He's like his guy. And, but there's also... But there are also major French aristocrats, including the Constable of France, who's related to the King of France, and 11,000 French troops. That's a non-trivial amount of French troops. Remember, there are only 6,000 English troops, English right. and Gascon troops. So they're almost doubled in number in this area. And yet the English are given a couple of choices. So here are their choices. And we can kind of think which ones makes the most sense. What should they do? Choice one is to siege Toulouse. Should they start to try to surround it, Toulouse is on a major river. It's got walls on both sides of the river. Should they, them as 6,000 troops, try to surround 11,000 troops? That's 1A, do a siege. 1B is to start a siege and try to lure the French out and give them battle. Those ideas could work. Remember, the French had just been annihilated about 10 years earlier. Option two is they could return to Bordeaux. I mean, they'd already obliterated Armagnac. They'd burn the entire countryside down. It would have been a success to just simply turn and leave. And if the French try to attack them, okay, that's just option one. Yeah. Just on probably more favorable terms because the English could reorient themselves and give them a fairly equal battle. Yeah, it'd be the exact opposite. They go back to Bordeaux and the French pursue them and now they're like, now we have the walls. Exactly. The walls are the important thing. Or we can just go up on top of a hill, and you have to attack us up a hill. That's right. what happened at the Battle of Cressy. That's why the French lost. They had they charged up a hill. At Longbows. At Longbows. It's unwise. It's like charging into machine guns. It, it doesn't work. But the French did that like 600 years later. So World War One reference there. Options 1A and 1B don't make sense. Right. The, the English, though they probably could still win that war, that battle, because they have the Longbows, they're gonna run out of food they they burn the whole countryside around them they have taken what they can if yeah. they try to start a siege they can last the siege for like two or three weeks before they run out of food and they have to retreat anyway right so option two is what the french expected kind of armagnac is a very conservative military planner and he said he, he thinks well the english are in foreign territory they're gonna run out of food they probably want to fight me if I can, and I'll probably lose if I fight them. So I'm going to gamble that they have achieved their goals of burning down my entire county, and they should return and enjoy their victory. The French wait, and the English choose option three. Option three is keep going. Just keep going east. And just go past the city. And just, just past the city. It's a weird choice. Well, not only that, no one thought it was possible. And the reason why is Toulouse is just north of the confluence of two massive rivers. These are not streams. These are fast-flowing, rocky rivers. The Garonne 
and the Ariège. I'm not pronouncing those in particularly good French, but that's more or less how they pronounce the Garonne, the Ariège. And these are big rivers that are, I think, only like 10 miles south of Toulouse. They combine, and then Toulouse is right above that. Well, the English kind of wait for a little bit and try to figure out what to do. And then they start to search for a way to cross these rivers. The French had thought, well, let's stop them by blowing up all the bridges, except for the bridges in Toulouse. Right. So the only way they can cross is either go really far to the north, which is completely controlled by the French, or try to walk across a river. And think about how much of a river is a impediment to an attacking army when you don't have modern equipment. Right. You have a horse. Yeah. Horses We're... drown too. We're still a little ways, a small ways away from uh, taking uh, what is it, ro- uh, is it the paddle boats over the over the rapids? Yes. Episode one throwback. Yeah, I mean we we don't have boats of that variety. We don't have enough boats in the area to transfer six to eight thousand men. Yeah, and grain storage, and yeah, all the carts, and three times the amount of horses that you have people. Now, the benefit to the English and Gascons is they do know how to cross their carts across water without ruining all the grain. They have or figured out how to do that. We don't know how they figured out how to do that, but we know they did because when they crossed through all those little ravines and things earlier on, just a couple days previously, they had done it without starving. It's one of those things in history where, like, well, we assume they didn't starve because they're still there. That blows my mind. I couldn't even figure out how to do that in Oregon Trail. <laughs> This is just a whole throwback episode. Just just solid old gaming references. But it's the same problem those people I had know. in the 19th century. Yeah, and then I got cholera. <laughs> Kevin. Kevin died of cholera over and over and over again. No, Joey always died of cholera. Yes. Sorry, Joey. He's not listening. <laughs> Regardless, the French just wait. Because they know the English either have to leave or fight them. And though they don't want to fight, there's a good chance that the English are either going to leave or fight the French on French terms because time is against the English. The English have to do something. So the English apparently know people in the countryside. They have those connections. There is that part of France that apparently didn't like the French because there seems to be scouts on the, on the English side that know this terrain well. So there's people who live in this area who are not supporting their overlords for whatever reason. They inform the English that there are some potential areas that they might be able to cross these rivers. But here's the thing. No one has ever crossed these rivers before. No horse has ever crossed without a bridge in all of history, the Garonne and Ariège rivers. So the French are like, this is impossible. Everyone who lives to the east of these two rivers is like, we're safe. Yeah, they're just chilling. The English find two fords right before where the river's confluence, and they go right across. They... The rivers are pretty intense, and they do lose some men. They lose a bunch of horses, but they don't lose enough. They to brought a lot them. of horses. They bought a lot of extras on purpose. Yeah, for for a moment like this. Exactly, and they enter a wholly new place of France called Languedoc, which is it means like the language of the West is what it means in French, but it's Languedoc. And the plunder continues. They just go due east, and they just keep going. The French army is now behind them in a fortified zone, but the English are just like, if we just keep going, they can't catch us. And if they want to fight us, cool. We're just going to keep raiding. We're going to take as much gold and silver as possible, keep getting as much grain. We're just going to keep zigzagging through the French countryside. And they just go due east toward the Mediterranean, do as much damage as possible, because now they have done something great. Not only have they undermined the French, 
they've done it with glory. They're not only proving the French king to be unreliable slash incompetent, but they're also like, we can do things that you thought were impossible. Yeah. That's That's how outmatched your aristocracy is compared to ours. That's unbelievably terrifying for the French people. Mm -hmm. So the peasants panic. They all just start to disappear. Everyone runs to the castles. And any town that has a castle is, again, avoided. And the town is burned. They take all the supplies. The army is consistently camping outside these towns. They learned early on, the English army did, if they camped in the towns, the castles would shoot stuff at them. Mm -hmm. So they had to stay back. And a lot of times the castle would light their own town on fire and try to burn the English alive. So the English have to kind of camp outside these cities but take everything. In many instances, um, Edward the Black Prince is able to be inducted into these various, like, monasteries as a lay brother as he stays in the monasteries, which are, like, comfy with beds because the monasteries are like, well, if you don't kill us, we'll, like, let you stay here. Right, right, right. They're going, they're going, we're a big fan of not also being burned, so... It was ironic, though, was the Black Prince had no desire to hurt them at all. Right. So this is just one of those, well, if I don't have any desire to hurt you, you're going to support me, right? Right. And they say yes. This is that classic hedging your bets thing, which is kind of what this whole raid is predicated on. Exactly. Is the concept of, eh, people will hedge their bets on this. But you start to see the fact that this isn't just wanton slaughter. Right. There's a specific goal in mind. You destroy what, who and what supports the French. This is an area that is so rich that it is able to provide thousands of men to the French army. And this is a time in history where the French army is like 30,000 men total. So you're taking like 10% of the French army away by destroying Armagnac and Languedoc. That's a big deal. The destruction they wrought on some of these towns is so bad that in the years following, the French have to give a massive stimulus package to all of these individual cities just to have them rebuilt. They exempt them from taxes for 10 to 20 years so that the people can actually rebuild their towns. And some of these places, the population just never recovers because the the people starve Mm -hmm. or they are killed trying to resist. Or they just become displaced and it's hard to relocate back to your original spot when you were displaced with nothing. I mean, think about how many of these people lost their homes and just decided to live in Toulouse. So that city probably grew, but the rest of the countryside shrinks. Yeah, and quality of life in Toulouse also goes down as a net result. Way down. Yeah. The amount of disease goes up. Yep. D- do you want a plague? Because that's how you get a plague. Well, remember, this is 1355. So you definitely don't want a plague, comma. The French king, before the guy who's currently the French king, had died in 1350 of the plague. Yep. When even the king is dying of the plague, that's a bad plague. Mm-hmm. So to give just further context, as the English start to move into this new territory and plunder and destroy and take everything they can, forge their horses and do all the same pattern, they're achieving all of this six years after half the English population was killed by the plague. They're able to organize this raid with this level of intelligence and complication with half of their intelligence. And their society was able to rebound quickly enough to organize not just one, but three separate raids like this, this being the biggest, most famous, one being canceled and one petering out really fast. But that shows a society that is rather well connected and can handle themselves. And it also kind of explains a little bit why the French are not defending themselves very well. They had also just gone through a particularly bad experience. The last 20 years for the French is absolutely crushing. 
Their aristocracy is annihilated. Their population shrinks horribly. I can't blame these people for just hoping that these rivers keep the English out. Yeah, it's all it's all you've got. Like it's never been crossed before. We're probably safe. Yeah. Let's hope. And then the English appear. As the English move continually to the east, they approach a town that Mark will like called Carcassonne. Hey. Now, everyone who doesn't know, we're, we would like to recommend a game. Yes. It's called Carcassonne. No surprise. Dang it. I was, was going to try to get in there with Settlers of Catan before you could say it, just as like a subverting expectations kind of thing. So, Mark, yeah. tell us what Carcassonne's like. Uh, Carcassonne is a game about pretending you didn't pull the tile you, you actually picked and then picking the one you actually wanted when no one's looking. What do you make in Carcassonne? Uh, you make cities and roads and fields, but mostly cities. Well, ideally mostly cities. You mostly make roads. You basically make a map of the English countryside, and in the process... The French countryside. uh, Yes, sorry, the French countryside. Southeastern French countryside. In the process... You'd you'd be pronouncing a lot more of the consonants if it was the English countryside. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Actually, have you ever been to the English countryside? You don't pronounce most of the consonants there either. That's true. That's just because they can't. (laughs) True. Sorry, English. You make a a bunch of really big cities. Yeah, so, so really quick, the game is... Square tiles, you pick one, and you place it, and then I guess the, there's, a, there's a river that runs through the center that's randomly generated, and then you pick sections of cities, roads, or fields, and play it on a matching adjacent piece until you've built out an entire countryside, wherein as you develop the cities and the roads, you want to place soldiers to lay claim to them, and once you have closed off the city or completed the road, you can score points for having kept control of it during its construction. But one of the most intriguing parts of the game to me is the aesthetic appeal of the cities that are randomly created yes you have strange maneuvering cities that seem haphazard and poorly planned because that's how they got made and the name carcassonne is based off of the city in france because carcassonne has this absolutely massive castle i would highly encourage anyone who's listening to this to go on Google Images, go on Wikipedia and take a look at Carcassonne. And what's called the Cité in French, the city, is this huge castle on a hill with this double curtain wall. And it just looks like something out of a textbook medieval castle. It is epic. And around that city with another wall down below the the mound is a semi-fortified, really big town as well. So it's like 15,000 people, I believe, mostly in the city down below. And what's called the the city up above is this super impregnable castle. You simply cannot take this castle without a protracted siege. And yet the city of Carcassonne is this like jewel of a city. It is filled with art and riches and wealth and it's the center of the old roman road so it's connected to the mediterranean sea as well as paris it's in an incredibly important area surrounded by some of the richest countryside the english are currently marauding through also seriously look up a picture of it it is really cool mark was looking at pictures i was saying all that yep we'll we'll put a picture in the show notes and so when the english get there remember how they should be feeling right now They're aware that if they make a wrong decision, they're going to have to fight the French, who are chasing them. They're only about six miles behind them. They know that if they go too deep, a bad change in the weather is going to potentially ruin the campaign. Because even though this is in southern France, which has super similar weather to northern California where we are, and meaning the weather in the winters is really not that bad, it's cold and kind of rainy, 
a blizzard could hit or a bad snowstorm or sleet or something could hit this army. And if that kind of weather affects an army outside of its supply base, there's a good chance they're going to be so demoralized and wrapped up in surviving the weather that they're dead in the water. So with this in mind, the English under the Black Prince, the Black Prince goes, let's, let's attack the city of Carcassonne and get as much out of it as, as we can because it's such an amazing prize. They attack the city and they start to basically stay there. They stay there for a couple days and they start to take as much out of it as they can. But the fortress at the top of the city fights back. They have giant ballistae, which are huge crossbows. And they start to fire flaming crossbows at the English. That is quite the heavy artillery for the time. And to cross the river that Carcassonne's on, on, all these towns are on rivers, do you have to cross within artillery range of the city, the city being the fortress. And the English quite quickly realize, especially if the Black Prince himself is shot at, that maybe this isn't the best idea. So before they've done anything to the town of any consequence, the citizens of Carcassonne try to bribe them out. They basically try to empty their treasury to get the, British, the, the English to leave. The Black Prince refuses. He says, no, I can get more out of your town than you can bribe me. Now, if the town was less wealthy and less filled with precious things, they probably would have taken the bribe. Right, they had they'd bought supplies at previous towns. Yeah. So they torch it. They burn Carcassonne to the ground, except for the fortress. Once again, look at the picture and you'll understand why. Yeah. And once they leave Carcassonne, they move toward the Mediterranean. There's just another, like, 10, 20 miles left, maybe a little bit more to get to the Mediterranean, which Edward, to his sending the letters back home, the Black Prince calls them, calls the Mediterranean the Greek Sea. So it has that kind of medieval air to it when he talks about it. And they reach a town called Narbonne. And Narbonne is the end of where they can really feasibly go. Because Narbonne is just like Carcassonne, except it's bigger and more well defended. And the English sit outside and the Black Prince calls a meeting together and they try to figure out what do we do? This is where we started our story, remember? France is burning behind him. The weather's turning cold. It's now early November. Mediterranean Sea is within visible distance to the east. They're running out of supplies because as they move through the land, anytime they pause for a second, they start to run out of supplies really fast. They realize we need to get back. We need to do something. Either fight the French or hovering behind them still. They don't want to fight them. They're just... And giant castles. Yeah. Remember, the French can immediately retreat if they have to. So that's one of the reasons the French don't want to attack them, is they don't have to. Yeah. They know the English, the further they go, the more desperate they'll become. So the French have to, the French can just wait. Yeah, and Whereas the English the, have kind of cornered themselves at this point. They've 100% cornered themselves. And the Black Prince and his army decide to strike north. Once they go up to the north a little bit, they realize that they can't really get any supplies up there. There's a region up there that's just not fertile enough for their army. And it becomes so bad that though they still have enough food, they're running out of water. Even though it's a cold, rainy time of the year, the land is so rocky, there's no rivers. Or the rivers are so small, they can't water their horses. They're actually forced to uh, give their horses wine instead of water. And, you know... I don't know a lot about like horse biology, but I do know that most other animals can't handle alcohol like humans and other primates can. So these horses are 
able to get this like tiny burst of movement and then they get massively dehydrated from it. It doesn't really hurt them internally, but they need a lot of water after drinking this wine. So it's like this like backup reserve just to get the horses far enough to find another place where there's water. And they actually lose a ton of horses at this point. A lot of them start to fall over and twitch and get what's called colic for a horse where the horse is struggling just to keep moving. But they are using force marches, swing up to the north and swing back south across the route that they were going. And they're able to, with a lot of effort, but no one really starving or anything, manage to find a way into new lands that they hadn't previously sacked yet. And they're able to get more water and more grain as they burn the countryside more. If you look at a map of southern France, the Pyrenees are this big mountain chain and there's these foothills. And then there's a wide variety of little rugged hills and big river plains. Well, they find their way into another river plain around this town called Limoux. And Limoux is this really prosperous town. And they destroy it. And they kill everybody. And they burn everything in this area as they cross through this area. And the French are right behind them. And the French are starting to get kind of angry. And the, Brit the English just got to get out. They got to get out. And so they have an idea. We've already discussed how some of these French lands were at least leaning toward the English. Right. Well, they're kind of lucky here because due west of Limoux, in the next valley over, is a rather small land called Foix, the most French thing ever, F-O-I-X. I believe it's pronounced Foix. That is French A-F, which in this context stands for as French. Yes. And Foix was ruled by a guy named Gaston. Uh, this is the most French the French have ever Frenched. And Gaston was the cousin of one of the major Gascon lords in the Black Prince's army. And not only that, he had actively supported, or at least actively not supported, the French. He had actually supported the English, actively not supported the French during these last 20 years of war, to the point where John II of France, the king at the time, had imprisoned him for two years when he was 19. So he's a young guy, yeah. but he's in the same generation as the Black Prince and these lords in Gascony that are fighting with the Black Prince and have been fighting with him for, you know, 40 days now. That bodes well for, for the Black Prince. When the Black Prince's army shows up in Foix, they're welcomed. It's like a party. They show up. They all greet together. They meet up. We don't exactly know what they talked about, but they have a nice, relatively quick, but leisurely way through foie and are given supplies, and they purchase supplies, and they just it's a good day for get a English. little break. Imagine how difficult their lives had been for the last like week, trying to get through the countryside while being pursued, trying to get as much out of the countryside as they could to I mean, survive. It's hard to be really sympathetic towards it is the true. plight of the English on this, but <laughs> I can I can tell that like yeah, you roll in you roll into Gaston's neck of the woods and you're like, oh thank God. We're starting to move toward mid to late November, and once Gaston leads them to the edge of his lands and they pass out of his lands, they're back into the same basic area they were just south of Toulouse, which, to be fair, is not really where you want to be. They've already burned and taken everything they can out of a lot of these areas. The French are starting to sniff the idea that they may be more vulnerable to a battle, and the English are pushing, 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 pushing to get them. They're doing what are called forced marches, where they're pretty much working people past their 
physical limit to get them as fast as they can. They're normally you would go for you march for two days, rest for a day. They're now marching for three or four days and resting for a day. Again, they have to feed the horses wine instead of water. And at this point, the horses are so ill from this that many, many of them die, and they're starting to run out of supplies. And what's worse, the French start to actively attack them. And the Black Prince is willing to send a little mini-body of his troops out to fight the French raiding party, and so there's these two small groups of soldiers, probably about a hundred on each side, maybe even less, mounted, well-armored knights, and they fight in this little battle, right as the English are starting to get toward their Gascon lands, and the English annihilate the French in that little battle. Both armies at multiple times set up as if they're going to fight a battle, then the, the French withdraw. The English move a little further, the French send out a raiding party, the English destroys it. They both move. They both set up for battle. The French withdraw. It gets to the point where the English are setting up for battle every day, going, come on, come on, we're ready for this. Yeah. We've like, been ready for this for weeks. We beat you yesterday, we'll beat you again today. Yeah. We'll beat you a week from Tuesday, it doesn't matter. And I, I just can't help but think of this as professional athletes at this point. Think about what these guys do as their job. They are constantly training for physical combat. They are organized in these, like, pickup teams. They're little regions. I mean, the, the Black Prince's troops all come from his lands, that lands that he owns. And so he picks up a bunch of guys, and they all go fight him. He pays for them. They're all contracted and stuff, so it's professional in that respect. But, you know, these are just athletic, young, intelligent men. And the battle is like the championship. If you lose the championship, you probably die. Or if you're in a risk, right, you get captured and ransomed and sent to prison for a while, but you're treated pretty well. But that's what this is. If you want an analogy, these are professional athletes. This is LeBron James going against Kobe Bryant, whatever. Whatever analogy you want to use, okay? But that's what these guys are. And so the English are saying, we're here to fight. We're going to avoid fighting and sieging because that's stupid for our purpose. But if you want to fight us, we can. We've beaten you before. We'll beat you again. Yeah. And you can think about it from the French perspective of, well, we'll probably lose the battle, even though we outnumber them two to one. There's a lot of theories that the Count of Armagnac doesn't think he can beat the Black Prince. The Black Prince was already famous for being very good at fighting battles. And the Black Prince has a host of earls and other important aristocrats that are simply better at fighting. They and know what they're doing. The French seem like they must be going into these combat, these, these combative situations with a defeatist attitude. Not even just purely based on the fact that they're losing two to one fights with home field advantage and like their own, so like being like home, like home turf, their own supplies near their own homes. And yet the English have been like with total like swagger and cockiness, like moving through French land, just burning everything to the ground. And the French have done nothing, really done nothing. Yeah. It took them this long to even start actively engaging in combat. And even then, when they finally do, and, and at this point, the English are at some of their most desperate and at their like least equipped, and they're still just kicking the crap out of them. The horses at this point are so drunk they can't cross streams. They're falling over because they're out of water. And they're still winning the fights. Yeah. Handedly. France, come on, man. Ah, it's like the Sacramento Kings out here. So the French yeah. retreat, and they actually never give battle. The English finally get back toward some of those lands that had switched sides at the beginning, 
And once they're in the territory, they stop marching quickly and they just ease their way back in to Bordeaux. All the Gascon forces immediately leave as soon as they get to the border. They all go back home. Right. Apparently, they had so much plunder that they actually left all their silver behind because they couldn't carry it all. And they only carried the gold. Now, that's wow. almost certainly an overstatement, but it just gives you the kind of idea that they had robbed the southern quarter of France of its entire wealth. Yeah. Yeah, so basically they... With no repercussions. Yeah, they just they just rolled through France, took everything, burned what they couldn't take, and had so much that even when they got back, they were like... Oh man, you know what? I don't need the silver. I got I got enough gold. And of those six thousand, eight thousand troops, they probably lost less than fifty. They lost almost no one. In a few of these places they tried to siege briefly, and they did burn down some castles and stuff during this process, only if they were pretty easy to do. There was some fighting, they lost some, but pretty much they just walked through France and burned it down for two months straight. They get back in early December. And they just simply celebrate for the next, you know, couple of months. They won the wow. championship. They did exactly what they intended to do. They wanted to undermine the authority of the French monarchy and the lieutenants of the French monarch. Though the French are more successful in the north in producing a stalemate, they still horribly lose the south. And this this region takes a full generation to recover. And just to add a little cherry on top to the basic premise of the story, with his army completely untouched and still hanging out in Gascony, the Black Prince calls up the same army and now is going to participate in the 1356 season in a battle with the rest of the English and English-supported forces up in the north, and he goes from the south of France, the south, you know, the west of France, and he starts going straight toward Paris. So he goes, well, I just beat them handily down in the south. I'm now going to join the rest of the English. We're going to pincer movement the French. So the French king, Jean II, he grabs a huge army with most of the same men that were fighting previously, most of the same aristocrats plus new men, and they have finally, after some movement around and a couple of... Uh, Messengers from the Pope trying to argue for peace. The Prince of England goes up against the King of France in a battle called Poitiers. Outnumbered two to one, the English set themselves up in three lines on top of a hill with the archers kind of around the back. The French lined themselves up below the hill in three lines. Why so they're like one after the next. So the English are this before. horizontal and the French are vertical. And the English have a hidden set of flanking troops hidden behind some trees the french march straight at the english lines when the first line starts to get hit by the initial longbow volley it starts to retreat back into the second line the second line pushes them forward but gets all jumbled and then the third line which is where the king is tries to push them all forward as they're being hit by arrow after arrow at that time the Black Prince calls in one of his um, subordinates to flank him. The flanking attack routes. Of course, this is the French. This is embarrassing, man. And the English immediately charge. Yeah, of course you would. What is going on here, France? Come on. And so, within ten years, the French aristocracy is annihilated for the second time. The King of France is captured by the Prince of England. He's imprisoned, <laughs> and his son, who is a teenager, this is a 
repetitive pattern in this war, is forced to try to control his country, which has been ransacked yep. for the past 20 years. The king has been captured rather dishonorably in a battle. The aristocracy is either killed or captured. The, the countryside is completely wasted. The French monarchy is broke. And half their soldiers are dead. Call France English horses because they are wasted. Nice. You're welcome for that. This is embarrassing, man. It Good get, Lord. It gets so bad that when the next couple years of combat end, after a long and protracted siege in a town called Calais, which is just across the English Channel, the English eventually capture a major bridgehead in the continent. Before they'd landed troops and been able to raid around, but they didn't have like a fortified area. And they yeah, finally like, like get a consistent one. inlet yeah. onto the continent. Of the northern continent. Yeah. Of course they had Gascony. But right. they finally get that area. When they sign a peace treaty, and it's a peace treaty, not a truce. This is the one that's supposed to try to end the war. It's called the tre the truce or treaty of um Bretigny, something like that. They are able to get back almost all of the land that they had had 150 years ago when they had controlled it before King John lost it, King John of England. France is left with practically none of its own land. The only caveat that the French won out of this was the King of England declared, I will no longer claim to be the King of France. Because that's what he had done to try to claim these lands in the first place, because he was more closely related to the previous kings of France. Yeah. That's one of those dynastic things that, as long as you know that the king of England was trying to say he was the king of France, that's enough. Right. But it's funny how that's the thing that was like the French were like real mad about. It's oh, like, it's yeah. not, you have all of our land. It's like, we can't do anything about that, but we can get you to stop saying that you're the king of France. Yeah. So the lands we have are ours. Right. The ones we've left. Right. But the war ends there in 1360 for a rather long period of time with the English completely dominant. So what happens to some of these men involved? Well, most of the earls who had fought, most of the aristocracy, those like lieutenants that were really supporting and were helping to make these decisions for the Black Prince, apparently he was very good at taking advice and using it well. You know, he had his counsel and he would take their advice and that, they're making the correct decision this entire way, right? You don't see them make a mistake. They're daring, but they're daring because they figured they could pull it off. It's calculated. It's calculated. And he's working with people who are native to the land. He's working with people native to the land. He's also working with the English people who know what they're doing. Yeah. And the people who are fighting with them, even the soldiers, have been fighting for 10 years of their lives. They know how to fight. And they know they have an advantage. So if they just don't make a glaring mistake or don't get super unlucky, they'll probably be fine. Yeah. And, and they just, over and over, it succeeds. If they, had, if they had stopped to siege a single castle for a week longer than they did, they probably wouldn't have survived any of those, like, desperate stretches. And they were aware of that, and so they're able to move their way around. So most of these earls that are with him, and that's like the highest rank of English aristocracy at this point, other than like the king's family, uh, most of them are actually pretty old guys. But in this turn period, that's like 45, 50 years old. And most of them die pretty quickly after this, some normal natural deaths. Um, the king, uh, sorry, the prince, he returns to gambling a lot and participating in tournaments. And uh, he actually gets dysentery in 1370 and then he dies before his father and so he kind of has a bad ending um they didn't handle peace well it's these that kings classic, that classic oregon trail death it's very similar right but he he is very indebted and he's really 
unhealthy by the end of his life because he's a great fighter, terrible at peace. Yeah. And so he dies of dysentery, and his son is actually the one who succeeds him as Richard II. He succeeds him when he's 14 years old, and he shows up in a major peasants' revolt later on, which we have an episode on. So that's the connection there. King John II, who's captured, he never really regains his throne. His son succeeds him, and the French monarchy continues. And the one that is kind of just depressingly boring is the Count of Armagnac. He's succeeded by his son, who is a little bit better. That's about it. He he fails. He, he doesn't just, do anything correct, and he doesn't lose anything because of it other than his lands are burned, but he still lives his happy, just, rich life. He just hit out in his city and mm-hmm. let, let the English go by and didn't really do anything about it and got to keep on living his weird, mediocre life. But I guess what was most intriguing to me was the fact that we don't think of medieval armies as being calculating and organized as they move and pillage the countryside and how effective they could be if they were run by people who knew what they were doing and the level of intelligence that these men had without any of the tools that we have in modern warfare. You can't help but think of the Black Prince as a success, at least in war. He truly was an epic warrior. And yet in the end, everything he establishes falls to the wayside. Everything he wins, he loses. Not him, but his descendants. And even he loses his status in the last 15 years of his life by being very bad at peacetime. His father goes senile, and the Black Prince's younger brother bankrupts the government. John of Gaunt bankrupts the government, and the English fall apart. Yet, at the end of this saga... A phase of the war is over, with the English standing triumphant over the entirety of their lands, their ancestral lands, and what I think is a truly epic story. I mean, honestly, it kind of showcases what we were talking about at the start of, like, you don't see medieval armies as calculated, coordinated, intelligent efforts. And I think that this is a great example of, like, when you find someone who who, who is, who does operate like that, this is what they're capable of. One who has loyal followers. Yeah. He trusts their intelligence. They're 20 years older than him in most cases, but they they know that he'll listen to them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing what just breaking form from the status quo will do for you in these, in these kind of things. It reminds me a lot of uh, the Revolutionary War in the U.S., in, in America, where where you have the English lining up in their lines and their bright red jackets doing war the way that you're supposed to do war, the way that we've always done war, gosh darn it. <laughs> and then uh, like the, the colonists are like, we're going to wear like brown and hide in the trees and shoot at you from there. Because if and, we fight you in that battle, we're going to lose. Right. And the English are like, you're not doing war the right way. And they're like, yeah, but we're going to win doing it this way. We just need to wait. Yeah. Yeah. It feels a lot like that to me. It feels a lot like, look, Usually you just go raiding through and you let the bloodlust get and like take over and all that stuff. And that's how you do that's how you do a battle. That's how you do an invasion. And they were like, but what if you did it with like some calculation behind it? What if you never fight a battle? Yeah. Because you know if you did, you could probably win. But if you never fight a battle, all you do is just keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. You'll probably win. 
And but even a even a battle that isn't well won enough can cost you when you are then way far behind enemy hundreds lines. Hundreds of miles. Yeah, and you're on a horse. Yeah, exactly. Any real battle could have been the end a month later, and by simply not engaging with simply taking, like we said earlier, very calculated risks, you you just you, you just absolutely stomp the French who were, at this point, a foremost military power. And the last thing, though, to me is, there's a phrase I've heard, um, rolling the monarchy dice. You know, when you're being succeeded by your son, you know, Edward had won the Battle of Cressy. He'd already done a really good job of conquering parts of France. His son is of equal caliber. And having the prince of France as the leader of this Chevauche is a big deal because that added that royal legitimacy to it. And it's rare in history that we see a son succeed his father in this way. Remember, Edward III's father was horrifically inept and he was overthrown by his wife and his wife's lover. I mean, this is not a that That didn't happen the generation before. So to have that consistency, there's a chance for an empire. That's how we see empires form is when the son surpasses the father but edward can't do peace well the black prince can't do peace well and he dies before his father does and he leaves his realm in shambles and i guess that's just the poetry of history at least france gets a good uh first round draft pick next year Thank you for listening to this episode on the Chevuchet or the Trebuchet or whatever it is that we just talked about. To learn more about this, you can use the resources listed in our show notes. Uh, it's all the same stuff that we use to research this episode. You can discuss this show on our Facebook group or follow, by following us on Instagram at Footnotes Podcast. If you like the show, we'd love it if you gave it a review on iTunes. It really helps us out. And until next time, thanks for listening. In a world where people do things. World's changing, boys. It's time that we change along with it. One man has to stand up for what he believes in. You and I, we're not the same. No, no, you and I, we're not that different, you and I. Coming spring 2023. Star Wars. The last of the last Skywalker fall rise. February, Christmas Eve. <laughs> it's staying in um, welcome to footnotes a history podcast focusing on forgotten moments people on the wrong side and those who lost my name is chet and i'm joined here <laughs> chet <laughs> it sounds so good in my head I like how you have the lowest introduction ever, and then my only thing I say is the highest pitched chet I've ever said. <laughs> okay, this is all going in the episode, but like at the very end, it'll be like it's a blooper reel. Yeah, pretty much. This will be the first episode of the blooper reel. I hope this episode doesn't end like super darkly. Uh, actually, this is one of the few that doesn't. Oh, there we go. I mean, of course, You're, there's lots of death. It's history, but still. You're welcome, audience. Thank you so much for listening.